coming up on this week's podcast. And so I really believe that when the Lord lays on someone's heart, hey, wouldn't it be great to have this, whether it's in the context of a community or in the context of a, a church such as ours or in the context of a world, I really think that's God speaking to that person and saying there is a real need here that needs to be fulfilled. And when the Lord puts that on our hearts, we ought to automatically start thinking of ways in which we can fulfill that need. Stay tuned for more. And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Justin Hibbard with today's message. This morning, we begin our series on the book of Judges, and uh, I just want to take a couple of minutes to um, go back um, a little bit because, and talk a little bit about this book and give sort of a, a brief introduction to the book of Judges. And I want to start with the book of Joshua. Many of you remember this series that we did nearly a year ago. It was a series on the book of Joshua. And, and in that series, we talked about Joshua 23 and 24. And it's in this where Joshua kind of stands up in front of the Israelite camps. He's, he's near his death. And he has led a campaign to bring Israel into the promised land to expel all of the different uh, groups that were um, occupying, occupying Canaan and to rid them out of the land so that Israel could inhabit it. But there was still work to be done. And so Joshua, uh, in chapter 24, if you have your Bibles, in Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 14, he says this to the people. He's giving them a command. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river, that's the Jordan River, and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua explains that, hey, not everybody has been taken out of Canaan. And you need to continue this work. Don't be content with living with them. Don't start intermarrying with these cultures. Don't uh, find yourselves adopting their gods. He gives them lots of warnings. And the people say, Joshua, yes, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Over and over, they say, we will serve the Lord. But if you have your Bibles, flip around to Judges chapter 2. Because this is the introduction to the book of Judges. This sort of of bridges Joshua into Judges. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at Timnah, Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After the whole generation had been gathered to their forefathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and serve the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, that had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger. And because they forsook him and served Baal and Ashtoreth, in his anger against Israel, 
the Lord handed them over to the raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around them, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. So at the triumph of Joshua's mission, at the end of the book of Joshua, we have this high point where Joshua is doing the work of the Lord and Israel saying, yes, we will follow the Lord. But it's not too long after that that all of a sudden those people die. That generation dies off and a new generation comes and it says they did not know the Lord. And all of a sudden they find themselves intermarrying with these cultures and before long they are adopting the, the idols of those cultures and before long they become the slaves of those cultures. The book of Joshua is about a book of cycle. It's a book about a cycle of sin. It's what we call it, the judge's cycle of sin. It begins with peace in the land. That's what we see at the very beginning of, of the book of Judges. There's this peace in the land at the end of Joshua. But it's not long before Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so when they do evil in the eyes of the Lord, God punishes Israel, and Israel is enslaved to these people around them. Israel, of course, will cry out to the Lord because they want his help, and God raises up a judge. These individuals that we'll talk about for the next number of weeks who come up and rise against these people and deliver them from, uh, from enslavery. And lastly, Israel is delivered. And Israel's delivered, and so there's peace in the land, but then the cycle of sin continues. Over and over, this is what we'll see in the book of Judges. The book of Judges actually takes place over a long period of time. It's not like this week they did this and next week. It's like 80 years of peace, you know, 50 years of slavery, and then, you know, a judge comes in. There is lots, it's a long history. And so today we're going to look specifically at the book of Judges, and we're going to concentrate on the judge Ehud. He is one of my favorite judges. He is a very interesting judge. He's, uh, there's not much said about him, but it is kind of a gory story. So this is a good, good thing that we have Children's Church today. And I figured maybe because it's a gory story, maybe we should start rating our sermons. So, so maybe um, we'll, we'll say this sermon has been rated PG-13. For, we can leave for nonstop ninja action. I think that would be appropriate in this one. So this is, uh, this is kind of one of those, those, those gory stories that we, we hear about. And anyways, we're going to, you know, and, and I was, um, one of my favorite sites is this site called Brick Testament. It's, um, it's a Lego version of the Bible. Have you guys seen this? It's really awesome. Someone took screenshots of all these Legos and, and, and tells the Bible stories. So I figured, you know, this is, this is better than maybe, you know, maybe videos that are out there that would depict violence in a little gory fashion. And uh, it was funny because I actually found a cartoon on YouTube, and the intro of the cartoon was not frequently animated Bible stories, you know, and this about the story of Ehud. So let's look at it from the Lego perspective, and we'll, we'll fast forward to Lego land. We'll go verse by verse. Judges chapter 3 is where I'm beginning, verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil 
in Yahweh's sight. And Yahweh gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel. King Eglon was a very fat man. The, I love this story. <laughs> the Israelites were enslaved to King Eglon of Moab for 18 years. So here we have an enslavement that's happening for 18 years. And then, of course, the Israelites cried out to Yahweh. And Yahweh raised up a deliverer to rescue them, Ehud of the tribe of Benjamin. He was left-handed. The Israelites sent him to King Eglon of Moab to pay their tribute payment. So as part of the the slavery agreement, they have to pay a certain amount to this king. Ehud made himself a double-edged dagger about a foot long. He strapped the dagger under his cloak on his right thigh and brought the tribute payment to King Eglon of Moab. And after presenting the tribute, Ehud said to King Eglon, I have a secret message for you, O king. Quiet, commanded the king, and all his attendants withdrew. Ehud approached him while the king sat alone in the cool of his upstairs room and said, I have a message for you from God. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud drew his dagger with his left hand and thrust it into Eglon's belly. The handle went in after the blade, and the fat closed over it. Ehud did not pull the dagger out of his belly. I told you it was graphic. It's a graphic story. Ehud escaped through the latrine, having locked the doors of the upstairs room behind him. And after he had gone... King Eglon's servants came and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. And they said, he must be relieving himself in the latrine. And they waited a long time until they felt embarrassed and then used a key to open the doors. And there lay their master lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped to safety at Sirah, where he said to the Israelites, follow me, for Yahweh will deliver your enemy, the Moabites, into your hands. They followed him and captured the fords of the Jordan River opposite Moab, and they killed about 10,000 Moabites that day, all strong, capable fighters. Not one of them escaped, and the land had peace for 80 years. It's a pretty pretty neat way to illustrate the Bible. There are lots of stories in the Brick Testament. I think it's like bricktestament.com. It is an awesome, awesome website. Great for the little kids, too. And I was a, I was a Lego maniac, and... Um, and maybe your kids are as well. So it's a, it's a really great story. But there are, there are some neat things in this story. And I think I'm going to take some literary liberties today and sort of try to fill in the gaps in talking about the story of Ehud and, and give it a, a different perspective. Let's begin when Ehud was a little boy. Ehud was a little Jewish boy. And just like all Jewish boys, he had big dreams. And he, he played with his friends. And he went to Hebrew school. And he learned how to read the Torah. Only he pointed with his left hand. And that was weird because he had these big dreams in life. He, he wanted to fly like the Michael Jordans that he didn't know would happen one day. But they were all right-handed, right? Nobody had ever heard of a, a left-handed Sultan of Swat, right? Or nobody had ever heard of a left-handed golfer and who was so famous they just called him Lefty. No, he was a right-handed man living in a left-handed world. It was, it was unfair to him. He had, he, he had to use a different water fountain, and, and even the handle was on the right side. Now, how many of you are left-handed? It actually explains a lot. 
No, I'm just playing. Well, there's very few in the world. 10%, I think, is what they say. Even though it seems like there's more because we watch sports and it seems like half the players are lefties. Well, it's because there's such a big market for them. But it's very interesting because being left-handed is sort of taboo in a lot of cultures, especially in the Middle East and in Africa and things like that where using your left hand is, is used for cleanliness functions because they don't have certain things that we have, right? And so you never touch somebody with your left hand. You never touch somebody with your left hand. That's why Jesus says, if, you're, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Because nobody did anything with their left hand. When you sit at the table, your left hand goes in your lap. It doesn't go on the table. You don't shake anyone with your left hand. It, it's just very taboo. In fact, this is very similar to a, a scene that I remember going to Morocco. We stayed at a family's house. And she made us this big plate of food. And really what you do is you just you all dig into the same big plate, and they don't really have forks. You just use your fingers. And so for that reason, you only use your right hand, and your left hand stays on your lap. But poor Ehud, being left-handed, he was at a severe disadvantage because he lived in a right-handed world. There were only right-handed desks, no left-handed desks for him. Those of you left-handers, you know what I'm talking about. I had a friend in, in high school, one, a, good, a good friend of mine named Corey Fitzgerald, who came to this church for many years, he was left-handed, and, and the poor guy, it seemed like every class, he was moving desks around to get that, le- that one left-handed desk that was in the room. That's the way. And to watch him write was a phenomenon because he would curl his arm all the way around like this so that he didn't get any ink on his sleeves. Something I take for granted, you know, writing left to right. It makes me wonder if the person who invented the Hebrew alphabet and Hebrew writing was left-handed, right? Now now you're writing right to left, and for all you righties out there, now you can get ink on your sleeves and see how you like it. <laughs> well, that was Ehud's world, I think, being left-handed. Nobody had really heard of being left-handed and being successful. All the tools were made for right-handed people. In fact, when he wants to make a dagger, he has to make it himself, a special left-handed dagger. He is at a severe disadvantage. But Ehud sees his people oppressed. Moab is, is taking advantage of Israel, oppressing Israel, and this king Eglon is, at, is at, the, at the helm of it. And so Ehud has an idea. He says, I'll take the tribute payment to king Eglon that day. And so he, he fashions a blade, one, one foot long, and he puts it on his right thigh. Now that's an important an important concept. Why? Well, the TSA back then is not like the TSA now, right? They only checked the left leg. Why only the left leg? Because if you're right-handed, you're drawing your sword or your dagger from your left leg like this. But he's left-handed, he'll be drawing it like this. And so they haven't, you know, nobody has uh, tested the system yet, right? There's no shoe bombers or underwear bombers or anything like that that makes us question how to get past security. And so the two guards at the gate check Ehud, do a very simple pat down, and realize that he doesn't have anything, well, at least that they can tell. And so Ehud is allowed to continue into the city. He brings the tribute to the king, and it says that he, um, with this, the, the brick testament left out, was that he left the tribute, let them take the tribute, and then he was exiting the city. But see, he exits the city, he has a couple escorts with him, and at every city there are gods. 
pagan gods that keep guard over the city. And so Ehud takes the soldiers. He said, wait a second, wait a second. I hear something. And Ehud goes over to the god, and he puts his ear up to him. He said, I think the god is saying something to me. And he puts his ear to the gods, and, and he said, okay, okay. And then he turns to the soldiers and says, I have a message for your king. Well, the soldiers don't know what to do. If Ehud has a message for the king, then from the god, and we saw this happen, then we should take Ehud to the king. And so they escort Ehud back to King Eglon, and there he is in, uh, in, in the palace. So Ehud says to him, King, I have a message for you. And the king says, okay, tell me what it is. Ehud says, wait, wait a second. You know, there's too many people here. This was a really important message. We need to go to someplace private. Well, it just so happens that during uh, ancient times, and even in medieval times, they build bathrooms at the top of towers. Now, why do they do that? Well, one, it's for privacy reasons. Number two, it also airs things out, so you get that airflow going. And then they can build some sort of um, kind of uh, sewage system, which is probably just kind of dumping out into the streets where the peasants live or whatever. But this is where, this is where the bathrooms generally were. And so Ehud says, so Ehud says to the king, he says, I've got to take you someplace really private to give you this message. So they go into this, to these upper areas where uh, there's the latrine where there is a, uh, maybe even a, a bedroom near there where it's a little cooler because you get the airflow. And Ehud locks the doors behind them. And now the king is standing vulnerably in front of Ehud. And Ehud said, and the king says, okay, Ehud, what's the message? Ehud says, I gotta whisper it to you. So he takes his right arm and puts it around the king to talk to him in his ear. And as he's doing that, he grabs his sword from his right thigh with his left hand and he stabs the king like that. It was a very creative way to get King Eglon alone because what did Ehud have to do next? He had to escape. And so it says that he exited out of the latrine from the tower and that he was able to escape from being captured. And that's sort of my rendition of the story of Ehud. That, it's interesting to think about, you know, this story, this kind of strange story with lots of details and lots of graphic images. And I don't know, it just sort of turns your stomach when, when you hear this story. But I, I think it speaks to us on a number of different levels. And I just want to share just a few points because we might hear this sermon today and say, well, what in the, what in the world was the point of hearing about the story of Ehud, this left-handed judge who, who kills a king? How does that benefit my life? How does that impact my life at all? I think there's some really interesting lessons here in the book of Judges. First of all, you know, Ehud is, he, he comes around at a time when Israel is under captivity. They're, they're in the hands of Moabites. And I, and I, and I got to think for them, they felt really helpless. They knew their sin had led them down to this awful path, and they didn't know how to get out. But oftentimes, God uses the unexpected people, doesn't he? He always seems to have a way of using the people that we would tend to write off. Always the people that we would say, we might look at them and say, there's really nothing for them. There's, I, I can't imagine them doing this. I can't imagine them achieving that. Uh, and God has a way of using people, even though we don't expect that he would. He has a way of, of empowering people, who sometimes don't feel empowered. 
I'm sure, I'm sure um, that uh, Ehud felt like maybe he'd hurt his whole life. Well, you can't do that with your right arm, so maybe you're, you're useless. But Ehud had a skill, and many people didn't realize his skill. It makes me realize that, you know, as a teacher um, or working in education, uh, I often come up, I see this a lot, and I see it a lot with, especially with kids with disabilities, with whether it's ADD or ADHD or executive function disorder or dyslexia or you name it. It's always a, this, this focus on what they can't do instead of what they can do. And always, um, and, and it's tough because here they are, they're, they're trying to take these assessments a certain way and the way our education system is set up, and what, the only thing that matters is these test scores, whether they're the AP scores or SAT scores or ACT scores. And the bottom line is that's not really everything, Right? I had a, I, I always tell this story because it, it amazes me every time. There was a student I had who took Spanish with me a number of years ago, and he struggled. And that's an understatement. He really struggled. And he just did not get it. And I've never seen someone, someone try so hard and fail so consistently. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. I felt so bad for him. He was a senior taking Spanish too. He had to pass Spanish too, in order to graduate. And I told him, I said, hey, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you do your homework. You work harder than anyone else in this classroom. So you have a tough time, you know, getting through the concept. We'll get through it together. And we would meet after school for hours, and, and I would try to help him along, and he just did not get it. I felt really bad for him. But, it, it, you know, he passed the class. And, but the thing about him was maybe he wasn't so much book smart, but the guy knew everything about cars. I, I, and I would ask him questions about my car because when I, and I said to him, I said, listen, I said, when I open up the hood, you know how when you look at Spanish and it's like the deer in the headlights look? When I open up the hood of my car, that's how I look. I have this, I have no idea what this stuff is. You know, I could probably tell you where the engine is and where you pour stuff, maybe. But I just don't, I have no idea about cars. And, and, you know, frankly, I just don't care that much. I just drive it, you know, someone else can fix it, maintain it, whatever. But I have no idea about cars. And, um, but he was a genius when it came to cars. So for his senior project, he restored a Model T car. One of the most phenomenal senior projects I ever saw um, in my time there at that school. And it was a reminder that this guy, you know, yeah, he didn't get Spanish. Yeah, he struggled with certain subjects. But this guy was brilliant when it came to cars. And I'll tell you what, if I was ever opening an automotive shop and... Trust me, I won't. But if I ever was, <laughs> he would be the guy I would put in charge because he knows his stuff. He's fair. He's a genuine person. And it just makes me realize every time I call him, I say, man, I'll tell you what, for as many people as that may have written him off in the past, he sure is being used by the Lord in a phenomenal way. The second point that I want to make today is spiritual leadership comes from seeing a need and obeying God's call and doing what's needed. I think this is an important point. And, and in fact, I, I'd reiterate this point with Ehud. Because in Judges chapter 20, we read something very interesting. And that is that the tribe of Benjamin is actually at war with a group of Israelites. Now, there's a lot of t- time that happens between Judges t- chapter 2 and Judges chapter 20. And I'm not going to get into the details as to why Benjamin was at war with Israel. But there is one fact that's in there. And that is that the tribe of Benjamin had 700 left-handed warriors. So 
I don't know how that came about, but I, I tend to think they saw Ehud could do it, and all of a sudden they thought, this guy's onto something, right? And it says that these 700 warriors, left-handed warriors, could sling, an, uh, sling a slingshot and hit the, uh, like, sever a person's hair. They were that accurate that someone could hold up a hair and they could sever the piece of hair with a slingshot from a ways away. It just demonstrates to me that, you know, a lot of times, even in ministry, we don't often, um, we don't realize what needs are out there. Sometimes we realize what the need is, but we don't know how to respond. There's always work to be done, but we're like, well, what am I supposed to do about it? But spiritual leaders are really the ones that see the need and then do something about it, right? The Billy Grahams and the Martin Luther King Juniors and the Mother Teresas and the many others who saw an important need in our society and in the world and said, you know what, it's not good enough to talk about it. It's not good enough to see that there's a need. I have to do something about it. And so I really believe that when the Lord lays on someone's heart, hey, wouldn't it be great to have this, whether it's in the context of a community or in the context of a a church such as ours or in the context of the world, I really think that's God speaking to that person and saying there is a real need here that needs to be fulfilled. And when the Lord puts that on our hearts, we ought to automatically start thinking of ways in which we can fulfill that need. Ehud saw the need. He saw uh, King Eglon persecuting his people, and he stepped up, and he fulfilled that need, much like Moses did, much like, uh, um, much like Esther did. And who knows, as Mordecai said to Esther, who knows that you were born for such a time as this. The last point I want to say is this. Every believer should defend God's people from injustice. Every believer should defend God's people from injustice. That's just something we ought to care about. Uh, there is a lot of injustice in this world. And you've probably seen it. Whether it's someone getting fired for something that's not their fault, for someone being passed over for a promotion in the workplace. How about in Iran, where we saw a, a pastor be put on death row for converting to Christianity? How about in the world where we see more and more Christians being persecuted for the gospel? That's injustice. And we should not be content just to say, well, that's the way the world is. When we see things happening uh, in the workplace, when we see things happening in schools and so forth with bullying, we should have the sense to say, this is injustice, and I want to step up and stand up against it. That's really what, what we, should, um, we should be focused on. I, I think there's, there's a lot of times when we don't speak out because we don't know how to speak out or we're afraid to speak out because we're afraid of what someone might think of us or we're afraid of losing our jobs or whatever it is. But really, I don't think that, that persecution is going to slow down or stop. Whether it's the media taking shots unfairly at somebody, whether it's, um, whether it's jokes about Christianity that's, that's made on sitcoms or something like that, uh, whether it's whatever it is, I think that we should have the sense to say, you know what, that's not really fair. What you're saying is not really right. Let me give you the whole story here and stand up for those people that often don't have a voice, that are often persecuted. Ehud was someone, um, and I think I admire these judges because they saw a need and they stood up. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we take up arms or anything like that and, and cr- create a revolution of sorts, 
But there are ways, especially in today's society, that we can step up peacefully and to say, I don't really like what's going on here. I don't think this is right. This is unjust. And so those are sort of the three lessons that I take from Ehud. I'm sure there's many others that we could take. But really to have the sense uh, of being used by God, of understanding our place in God, I think that's really the bottom line. We, are, we need to be people that have a heavenly vision to see what it is that God would have and see that in others. See not what we see in others, but what God sees in others before we write them off. Secondly, to be people that are spiritual leaders that take that call, that say, there's a need, I need to respond. And thirdly, to be people that are concerned about the justice in our world. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. New Hope Chapel.